look, I think with Adam, he typifies a really important list for anyone that's listening to this, if they're in business, if they're in politics, if they're in whatever they do, don't listen to people who knock you. Welcome to another instalment of What Matters, a podcast series inspired by a book of the same name. It's a book that navigates one man's lifetime of business and investing. I'm your host, Adam Spencer, and as always, I'm joined by that man. He's the author of What Matters, chairman of the Sydney Swans, and the co-founder of Molus Australia, which now, of course, has been rebranded as MA Financial Group. Andrew Pridham. We have a special guest with us today. Why don't you introduce our special guest, Andrew? Well, it's very special, Adam Goods. Oh, thank you. Adam Goods, Dutch. Can I just say, that is one of the best introductions I've had today. It was very... uh, It was heartfelt. Very focused, wasn't it? A lot of thought going into it. It actually reminds me of someone's retirement during this week, how thoughtful that response was. You might have thought 2014... If you'd have Straight won the year, if you'd have won three Brownlows, I would have really, you know, gone. Big Don't time. worry, two-time it, Brownlow medalist. It's one of the biggest bud bags of my career, not wearing a third Brownlow. And I really <laughs> don't want to talk about it, but I think we should. Two-time grand final. Anyway, Adam Goods joins us because we're talking today about culture and history. One one of the theories is that, but yeah, the best millennials now, if you want to get the best staff, they only want to work at a place that exists. They want to be able. To, be proud to be able to tell their friends what they do on the weekend, et cetera. Is it employee-driven? Is it management-driven? Is it community-driven? Where's the impulse coming from? I think it's driven from lots of different areas. It's driven clearly from staff. I think more and more staff are demanding that the company they work for is, has great values and something they can be really proud of and their friends can be proud of. It's not, um, it's not some evil financial empire. I think it's also driven by customers and our clients and our customers have expectations that that we um, are helping the community and we're part of the community. We're not just um, collecting rent, if you like. Um, and I think it also goes to other aspects of the world we live in today, such as media and how they perceive you, how they present you to, to the world. And uh, um, perception t- today, particularly with social media, has never been as important as, you know, as, as it is today. You talk about three aspects of MOLUS and the way it gives back to the community. Your intern and graduates program, uh, the Molus Academy. This podcast is part of that. But you also talk about the Molus Foundation. Talk us quickly through the foundation. We'll bring Adam in after that because he's you know, seen it at work. Look, the Molus Foundation is really the vehicle in which we collect money from our staff and from the company and, and then manage the, the investments within the foundation to then give to great causes uh, in, in Australia. And when we established the foundation, we've now, I think, in the, in the last three, four years, we've raised well over $6 million mm. and, and contributed to many great causes, including um, the Go Foundation. And the important thing with us with, with it wasn't just about um, ticking a box saying that we're going to you know, raise money and then donate a bit of our profits and go and give it to, to causes. I think that's pretty easy to do. I think you've got to actually engage with those causes as well. And one of the really important steps we took is that the majority of the funds that have gone into our foundation actually come directly from our staff and a relatively small amount comes from the corporation, if you like, and that's partially our belief that it's not really up to the company to uh, donate vast sums of shareholders' money because it's their money at the end of the day. They can do that with their with their dividends. Um, but it is up to the staff to, to really get involved. And so the staff are making voluntary contributions. I said the vast majority of the money we've put in is, is from staff. And secondly, that the staff then choose 
which causes they want to um, to contribute to and give to. And we have two major causes, which are the Go Foundation and Beyond Blue. Uh, but we've given to, I think, over 40 different uh, organisations in the last three years, all driven by the staff. One of those, of course, here yeah, you sit at the heart of it is the Go Foundation. And Adam, uh, after you moved on from your storied AFL career that Andrew, I think, captured beautifully in that introduction to you, <laughs> um, you moved on to the Go Foundation. For people not aware of the foundation, what's the elevator pitch of what the Go Foundation's about? I think the elevator pitch about the Go Foundation is two uh, family members who played, you know, 280 games of football together, living in a place that's not their country, you know, we're both from South Australia. Um, we came to Sydney, the Indigenous community here in Sydney really accepted us as their own. And when Michael retired in 2009, we really wanted to create something that could give back and leave our legacy that if we ever were to leave Sydney, New South Wales, that there was something that was here that we could leave behind to really say thank you to the Indigenous community. And over the last four years of doing academic scholarships for Indigenous boys and girls across now New South Wales and South Australia, uh, we're up to 550 students. Wow. Um, we started four years ago with 17. Those 17 were going to independent schools, so we've now um, increased the breadth to not only independent, um, to primary school, uh, to public school, and we range from kindergarten all the way through to university. Um, we've got a 60% focus on young Indigenous girls. We see that they miss a lot of opportunities out there. Um, we focus on the eldest in the family. Michael and I are both the eldest in the family. We know that that works, getting it right with the first. Um, the other siblings can follow in suit. Um, and the biggest part of our program is, you know, Michael was born into and raised into his Aboriginal culture and heritage. I wasn't. I, I missed that growing up. So a big part of our program at Go is not only the academic journey of the students, but it's actually the culture immersion that we provide at our leadership days, our mentor days, and the ambassadors that we put around them to support them throughout their journey. It's interesting because when people, some people hear primary school and public school, they think, well, that's hold it, that's free. You don't need a scholarship to go to your local high school, but a lot of people are lucky enough that they don't realise how much money it can actually cost to get a kid stable instruction and, and passing through high school. And exactly. And for some of our scholarships, you know, just even for primary school public students, you know, it's only um, $1,000, $1,200 max for those kids in primary school. But that money goes towards uniform, it goes towards laptops, goes towards Wi-Fi, goes towards tutoring. You know, it can even go towards um, cafeteria money if they're really struggling at home to put, you know, that food in their, in their tummy so that they can at least stay concentrating at school without having a, a hungry tummy, you know, interrupting them. So we try to provide them with money and support where we can um, to help them keep going to school and keep fitting in at school, whether that is uniform, whether it is the, the, the shiny new shoes that they need or the sporting shoes that they might need. But for us, it's all about how we wrap that support and love around them. Now, obviously, Adam would have had a bit of a head start having played for the Swans and knowing you in terms of the Go Foundation and whether Mollus might look favourably in that direction. What is it about the organisation? Because you've given constant support beyond just the financial, both from Mollus and from the Swans to Go. What is it about that organisation that sets it apart in some ways? Well, clearly, my relationship with, with Adam and Michael goes a fair way. Um, we've known each other a long time. From my personal perspective, not only our connection through football, but also South Australia, for all fellow South Australians. And I've seen through my involvement with the, the Sydney Swans, one of the, the great things it's given me is the experiences in the community and life that you don't normally get. Most investment bankers would not be spending time with Indigenous people understanding the issues, for example, how important and what role models 
Adam and, and Michael are as examples and, and how important that leadership is and seeing the impact that their efforts can have on helping hopefully generations of Indigenous kids who, um, you know, I've seen firsthand just how disadvantaged they are in life and to give them a better start, you know, I think it's very, it's very much like the Molos Academy. In my view, it's about giving people a start, giving them every opportunity to succeed in life, and that's what these guys do. And, and when Andrew talks about it's important to have not just dishing out money to something, but a genuine engagement with an organisation, what is it you've had from Molus that what, what, about their, their patronage, their sponsorship that's really worked at your end? I think the biggest thing at Go is that we don't just want people's money um, because that's just transactional. We want people to buy into, you know, the program, you know, what the ecosystem of Go is. So yes, money can help put students through our scholarship program, but it's actually the advice. It's the board advice. It's the business advice, how to run a foundation. Um, it's the actually opportunities for our students to come do work experience. It's opportunities for internships, graduate roles. If our students want to um, go down that pathway, so for me, um, you know, the guidance that we've had for many years from, from Andrew, it's it just been um, amazing from my point of view. And now to, you know, I remember that first lunch that we had and, and Andrew walked up to me at the start of the, the Go Big Lunch and handed me a check, you know, from their foundation. Um, you know, I was just over the moon that, you know, people bought into our vision and our vision is to, you know, use education as the vehicle to break down those barriers for Indigenous people, create that next batch of Indigenous role models, and it all comes back to education. And it's something that, you know, I look in this room where we are right now and I look in this floor where we are now at Molus, every one of the people in this office has had the benefit of a good education and how that education has helped change their life. Um, whether that's to university, whether that's completing university, whatever it may be, education has always been at the heart of why they're all here today. And um, we want to make sure all of those Indigenous people out there in the country can get the same opportunity of just getting that bare minimum of getting a good education and then seeing where the world opens up for them. I've been to a couple of Go functions. I've been to some of your graduation ceremonies where you present the kids who finished off high school or got on a uni and the like. And what I find interesting also is there's a great sense of celebration at those things, but also I can tell when you and Michael talk to those kids, you're there as friends and you're there as you know giving them a congratulations, but there's there's... There's a sense in which you and Michael are also mentors and you demand a fair bit of these kids. You, you, you insist they push themselves to be the best they can. I get the, it, It's almost like the, the skills in mentorship and leadership that you probably learned in your sporting career. Do you now see a transition that you're that leader in your organisation bringing on the next generation of kids who will be mentors themselves to Indigenous kids 10, 15 years from now? And that's the thing about our model by focusing on the eldest in the family. They're already role models, whether they like it or not. They're already um, being looked up to by their younger siblings, you know, watching them fail, watching them succeed. And for me, we were just trying to give them the tools that they need to make the right decisions. Now, we've had students that have made really poor decisions. We all make mistakes. I've made a thousand of mistakes. It's how we learn from those mistakes that can keep these kids moving and progressing forward. And um, I'm really proud of those students that have graduated from year 12 and of um, you know our alumni that have graduated from year 12. We're at 98% are off at university currently now. And the 98%? Yeah, we've got one student who's not and she's at TAFE doing social studies. 
She was a product as a ward of the state and she was looked after by social workers majority of her life and she loved the role that they played for her and so she wants to pay that back by becoming a social worker I've herself. I've met her. She's a fantastic young woman. Yeah, she is. Just a quick stop during today's conversation because I wanted to remind you if you're enjoying what you're hearing and would like to learn more, you can head over to mafinancial.com slash whatmatters to access your copy of the What Matters ebook. A book that navigates a lifetime of business and investing. That website again, mafinancial.com slash what matters. Now, back to the conversation. Andrew, you tell a story about, uh, I'll get you quickly on the Molus Academy and then I want to move on to a couple of tangential subjects. Tell us quickly about the Molus Academy because as Adam notes, a lot of people in this organisation or more broadly in the field of banking have already had access to great education, reasonably sharp smart people, there's still a role for an academy for people who are already in in that position? Well, I should correct Adam, just to point out, remind you, Adam, that uh, Mike Pike works here, your former teammate. So not everyone's had a great education. (laughs) (laughs) Some would say he's getting a great education right now if he's been able to hold hold fort here for the last five years. Well, he is six foot seven. (laughs) It's an advantage when you're dealing with me, I can tell you. Uh, The whole whole principle on the Moles Academy in it, a lot of it's come out of the Sydney Swans Academy and, and also what what Adam is doing is just the importance of teaching and education and showing people how they can be better versions of themselves. And really, um, my feeling is that formal education is, you know, to get into, to work at a, an organisation such as, such as Molus, formal education is really baseline to, to get here. But what, you know, if you speak to any graduate that goes into the workforce, one of the things they'll all tell you is what I learned at university did not prepare me for this. It's not. They've really, what they've been taught at university is how to learn and how to question and, and hopefully some social skills and other things. Uh, although with online, I'm not, not sure if that works anymore, but it used to. But what the academy is about is giving practical education and training in all sorts of disciplines, ranging from um, education that's required under licensing through to leadership and technical things within our business. So it's it's about the senior people within our business teaching the more junior people and giving them the, the benefit of their of their learnings throughout their careers and passing it on. And it's also about our junior people, um, more junior people, giving them the opportunity to actually teach people who are even more junior than them. Or in, in some instances, uh, I've got no doubt, where some of our more junior people can teach our more senior people. And if, mm. For example, if, if they can show me how to use my iPhone or computer, mm. um, please queue up, I'll, I'll take take numbers. So it's about everyone within our business helping each other to develop faster and be better. And I, and I think, you know, when I stepped down as CEO, I, I thought, you know, I had a lot of thinking about what I was going to do within the organisation because I'm still very much involved. And that I thought there's nothing better I can do for the company and for everybody here who I care very much about than to help teach them. Because mm. then in 20 years time, when I'm long gone and back playing football, um, <laughs> but they can continue on and, and hopefully be better than they would have been otherwise. Because it's interesting, Adam, in, in the other episodes we've done across this series, these these issues of culture, these issues of mentoring, of teaching, of of passing on, of bringing everyone with you have, have occurred regularly. And it would be remiss having you here not to you know, reflect on, and you won't be surprised also with Andrew's podcast, there's been a fair mention of football and the, the synergies between that and the business and professional world. It'd be remiss with you here not to get your reflections on some of those things. 
Today happens to be the draft day in the AFL. Tonight, a group of kids, dreams come true. When an AFL club puts out their hand and says, we want you to join us. First of all, take us back. You're drafting. What are your, what are your recollections of that time and, and, and what, you, what you expected from your life in football at the moment you made a club? So draft year, um, national championships, playing at centre-half back against Vic Metro, game one of the championships at the MCG before an AFL game. First quarter, I go to punch the ball, but I miss and punch the guy in the back of the head as he took the mark. Um, the guy was name was Adam Skrobelak. Broke my hand, out for the rest of the tournament. Um, Not great. Not great preparation. That was very unfair of him, really, wasn't it? It was very unfair Because that's your chance to showcase yourself to potential suitors. Correct. Um, and just so be it, this young kid who come off the bench and took my position, played pretty well for the rest of the carnival, um, ended up getting All-Australian, uh, centre-half back. You might know him, Matthew Scarlett. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, okay. yep. So um, he, he got his shot on the There's back a of... trivia question. Matthew Scarlett replaced you when you busted your hand on the back of Adam's Scrobelak's head. head. Yeah. So I then had um, 10 weeks off with a broken hand. So I went back to Horsham. I was like, well, I've got to stay fit. So I signed up to be a boundary umpire. So I did boundary umpire. Man, they train hard, those guys, I tell you. And it kept me fit for the next 10 weeks. I umpired two senior games in the in the um, Horsham District Football League. Um, you would have been tough but fair. Tough but fair, but I had to run around with a bag around my hand. <laughs> yeah. um, but it gave me, for someone who had very little knowledge of the game, it gave me incredible um, knowledge of what it's like on the other side mm. to, to umpire the game and to call it. And then I came back for the final series, lucky enough to kick six in the granny and we won uh, for North Ballarat Rebels and went to draft camp. Two coaches spoke to me. I remember speaking to Mick Malthouse and he sounded pretty keen and I was like, I was a Collingwood supporter. They didn't come anywhere near me. And I was like, okay, left draft camp, not sure what I was going to do. And that year, actually, 97, I was only 17, so I was a um, priority pick. So there's only 16 clubs that could have picked me up anyway. So... Draft day, I went to school, finished my year 12 English exam. I quickly rushed down to the West Side Tabaret at the race course because I didn't have Ozstar, Foxtel at home, and watched the draft. And because I knew there were 16 clubs with one priority pick left, uh, one priority pick each, I got to draft pick 35 and I ticked off all the teams. I said, okay, I'm not going to get drafted. Um, I've already ticked them off because based on whether or not the guy was 17 mm-hmm. or 18, I was just ticking them off. And then the broadcast came on and said there's still three teams left with their priority picks, West Coast, St Kilda and Sydney. And um, draft pick 43, the, the Swans read out, read out my name. And many years later, Ricky Barham, who drafted me at the time, he came up to me and said, you know, we'll touch and go on whether we picked you. I said, why is that? He goes, oh, because we sat next to West Coast, we both had a pick before we actually took our priority pick. And we both said, you know, there's probably two or three kids left. Who do you want? And West Coast said, you know, some name that uh, I think only played a handful of game. And Adam Scrobelak? No, it wasn't Adam Scrobelak. And, um, and, um, and they said, all right, this one said, all right, we'll, we'll probably take goods then, but let's do it around later and we can get two more players in before that. And, yeah, I was lucky enough to, to end up at the Swannies. I always like to say that the fact that you got picked at number 43, there must have been 42 very handy players. Well, going we have, around that year. We have to remember me at 17 versus, you know, what people got to see me the first time. Yeah. It's a completely different player. Tell I've us about been, you at 17. I was only playing, the, I've only been playing the game for three years. I grew up playing soccer back home in our motherland in South Australia. And, you know, it was only when I moved to Victoria that I started to play AFL. 
And, you know, me as a 17-year-old, I was shy, I was scrawny, I think I was 86 kilo, and I was inconsistent. I played like a yo-yo. One, one week I'd be best on ground, the next week I'd be the worst player out there. So inconsistent, um, very soft, you know, I ran around like I didn't have any arms on, didn't want to touch anyone. Um, and, you know, I had to learn. I had to learn once I moved to Sydney to, to play against men. I'd only ever played against kids my age and that was a real waking up uh, moment for me when I come up to Sydney, played in the AFL reserves that uh, first year and got to play against men for the first time. Because I, I, when Adam's being very, you know, objective in his assessment of himself, I don't see you jumping in to correct him. You would have had a very keen eye on players. You would have seen this guy. When he, when he makes the senior team starting early on, playing a few games, and there's always word about the new kids, tell us about this kid, what's going in the plus box for him and what's going in the minus column for him early on? Well, I think we knew that Adam had a lot of talent and the question mark, I'm sure you won't mind me saying, the question mark was whether he had the, the desire and the courage to play, whether he was going to really put that, that grit, whether he had the true grit. Uh, I remember sitting with footy experts, and of course I picked you as a, I actually thought you'd win three Brownlows, Guzzi. <laughs> Uh, but I'm always an optimist. <laughs> uh, others, others, you know, there were there were questions. You know, will will this kid back into a pack? You know, is he is he got the courage to do that? You know, and, and uh, so there were question marks. But that's often the case. Mm. And I think it's a great credit to Adam that people had the question marks. And uh, you talk about performance reviews that we give in business, and we've talked about that in, in other episodes. And you know, when you're in footy particularly when you're playing and you're coached by Rodney Eade, you get a performance review pretty regularly, don't you? You do, every Very training direct. session, every game. It's, it's so, so these sort of things, this was made clear to you, this is where you're good, but this is what you need to work on, mate. Oh, sometimes you could draw what he was trying to say was wrong with you. Um, it was very personal at times, but what was so good about that personal barrage that I was getting that the other teammates got around me and supported me. You know, guys like Paul Curia, John Stevens, um, Jason Saddington, you know, these guys that, you know, were all on the cusp of breaking into that senior team and on the cusp of, you know, trying to forge their own careers. You know, they tucked me under their arms. They, they taught me how to train harder in the gyms. They taught me how to train harder on the track. They taught me that, you know, being the first player in off the track is not a good thing, you know, be the last. You know, there's always something you can work on. And that sort of mindset really stayed with me and um, kept me sort of motivated that every year that I played, I can still get better. There's still things that I can improve on. We touched on the fact in a previous episode that of all the kids who make the list and actually get selected into an AFL club, 40% of them, give or take, play 10 games or less, many of whom never play a single game. So there's a level of, I've played a game or two. Then there is a level of, I'm getting chosen reasonably regular. I actually think I belong in this team. Then there's the next level, and there's a great story of your career when you're starting to think maybe I could be chosen as a leader in this group. I could be part of the leadership group. That's that next step up, and you miss out. Yeah, it's interesting. I've never been a um, you know going into that um, 2003 season. I've never been a leader at school. I never um, captain any team. Never was seen as a captain within the the leadership ranks at school and nor did I want it, to be honest, um, you know, that sort of responsibility. And it wasn't until after 2002, Paul Roos took over for the last handful of games. We didn't make finals that year. And 
Uh, it was the pre-season of 2002 into 2003 season where we did a vote, you know, working out what our blood's culture was going to be and who were the best people in our group that sort of adhered to those set of behaviours. And I finished second in the best and fairest the year before and I was like, okay, I, I think I might get a few votes in this leadership group. Didn't get a vote. Now, John Longmire was my coach at the time um, of the forwards and Rusey was a senior coach. And as I walked out of that meeting, I just grabbed the horse, I grabbed Rusey, I took him into horse's office. I said, I didn't get a vote. You know, what do I need to do, you know, to, to you know, prove myself to be a leader? And they just said, look, we've just drawn up all the values and behaviours that you need to adhere to, work on every one of them. Most importantly, we need to hear you. We do not hear you on the training track. We don't hear you on the, on the field. Um, we don't know if you want to be part of this team. We can tell by your actions that you hear everything and you're adhering to team rules, but we want you to drive others. We want you to support others. Um, we want you to challenge others. That's the biggest step that I had to make. And I made a commitment to those guys that, you know, this was going to be my plan for 2003 and um, it turned out to be a pretty good year. And most importantly, the end of that season, I was voted into that leadership group. We've spoken a bit elsewhere in the podcast about this in business, that you, you, your career won't be just a steady trajectory. There will be times in individual careers or in individual business you know, evolutions where you, you do take a knock and you miss out on something you want or a deal goes wrong. What, what is the skill in dealing with that and, and then demanding more of yourself, but also asking of other people, where have I fallen short? What more do you want from me? Well, I think if it's self-analysis and as I mentioned previously, it's really setting your goals that, to get better every year. And, you know, I've often observed that leadership is something that can uh, emerge over time. And he, you know, Adams just said you know, he was never captain of a team that he played for in uh, Horsham. And he ended up Australian of the Year, so that's not bad. A um, couple of Brownlows, you know, captain of a premiership team. Mm-hmm. Do you want to just continue on? With <laughs> well, yeah, I thought you might have mentioned this in the um, intro, but I'm glad you're I'm warming up, Goodsy. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> I wasn't, you know, leadership takes time. It does, it does. So it just shows that, you know, Adam's set himself goals and now possibly one of the most important things he'll do in his life will be the Go Foundation. I think it, it could be. And that's something that will develop over time. It's only just started, I think. And it, it's important to recognise that you can't just say, oh, I've made it. You've got to say, well, okay, I've done that. Now I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go better and better. You talk about 0203 at the Swans and the formation of the Bloods culture. And we've spoken about culture in this episode and elsewhere in the podcast. And it's something people in business and organisations keep coming back to. What was that process? What, what did you distill down as the values of the Bloods? Were they always there and you just codified them? Where did they come from? Yeah, so it was a camp that we did up at Coffs Harbour um, and we were introduced to leading teams. And I'd, I'd been working with leading teams at North Ballarat um, with Ray McLean and he just started the program in the under-18 competition. So it, was, it wasn't it was new to me. Um, I knew what the culture-based and player empowerment model was all about. And the biggest part of our um, you know journey to you know the Bloods culture was actually to put a big mirror up in front of us and say, who are we today? And 2002, we were a soft team. Um, we're a team that other teams looked at us and go, if you can just hang on long enough against the Swans, they'll bottom out, they'll, they'll stop trying. Because we lost a lot of games that year, 2002, by less than 10 points. I think it would have been like six or seven games we lost. Um, so you get close enough and they're always sort of dropped. So we wanted to not only reconnect to our history, you know, the Bloods culture back in uh, South Melbourne, 
Um, but we wanted to do something that was very unique to that group of players and then also set something up that could be passed on to future generations. And, you know, that was to really just flip whatever the perception of us was today. We wanted to be the complete opposite. And we had to work extremely hard to do that. And that came through the training. It came through our player review sessions that we had, which were just, you know, no holds bar about, you know, helping each other improve. The conversations we had, as tough as they were, you know, for me to sit out in the front of the group one out and listen to my peers tell me what they think about me, my training habits, um, my off the field habits, you know, how they think I can improve and then for me to go away and take that on and then do something about it. You know, those sessions for me were some of the best sessions in my career um, because, you know, my form would get to a certain point where I'd then have a session and then I'd have that session and, you know, reaffirmation from the players of what they think of me and where they see me and then for me to go, I'm letting the team down here. I know I need to get back up to that level. I need to make more sacrifices. I need to do A, B, and C, which they've suggested. So um, that culture really helped me grow as a person. And then to a point that made me feel like I belonged here. I need to be a leader here. I deserve to be a leader of this group. Hope you're enjoying the What Matters podcast as much as we're enjoying bringing it to you. Across the series, you'll pick up many great tips on how to be successful as a leader, as a business mind, as a person. One of the highlights in episode four, entitled Change and Crisis, was when we talked with Brian Tyson about the importance of scenario planning for crisis and maintaining a healthy level of paranoia. Andrew, in your book, What Matters, you do a quick brain dump of all the financial crises and catastrophes you can remember off the top of your head over the last 30 odd years. You come up with 10 of them. Yep, one every three years. Significant crisis that had a major impacts on the market. How many of those did we see coming? Um, in retrospect, many people would say all of them. <laughs> uh, prior to them occurring, none. Make sure you check it out. Now, back to our conversation. It's interesting because if you anyone knows anything about football, you look at that Swans team in 2003 through to the history-making premiership in 2005, and you talk about Blood's culture, you were also maybe in some ways lucky, I don't know, but you've got people there like Brett Kirk, Jude Bolton, etc. They would be the perfect people to try and develop and instill a Blood's culture because it's in their DNA to live that. Twelve years later, you win another one. The vast bulk of people playing in that team weren't around in 03 when the culture... So the ability to sustain the culture and pass it on is a big part of that later success. You talk in the book about Adam's role in being there for new players. Just recollect from the, the, the anecdote you make, and I want your reflection on this. Well, it's something that I've heard many times repeated, and uh, I, I talked about the importance of numbers in, in relationships within football clubs, and one of, the, one of my observations, because I'm uh, very observant apparently, <laughs> um, is that many of Adam's closest friends within the football club just happened to have numbers on their back which were very close to his, 38, 40, 41. 30. So it was something they've often told me is that when the kid would come in through the draft, it could be a rookie, it could be anyone, the first person that I'm told would always go up and put their hand out and shake hands and say, let me show you around the club, let me show you how things work, would be Adam. And you can imagine if you're an 18-year-old kid from Adelaide or Perth or wherever and you turn up and here's a 
excited but nervous as all get out walking through the mm. doors of your football club? I'd be very nervous because it's, it's, it's new to them. Or some of them probably weren't nervous enough, I suspect, but, <laughs> but that we soon worked that out of them. But, you know, to have Adam Goods, who, you know, whether he'd won one Brownlow, two Brownlows, played 250 games at that point or 300 games, whatever, uh, to come up, they'd be awestruck. But it also sends a really strong message mm. that, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, if you've got a locker and you've got a jumper hanging in it, you're part of a team. And that's the message that Adam gave by doing relatively little, but it's so impactful. Yeah, and it's interesting um, to hear that because for me, that's just part of my role as a leader of the organisation. And, you know, it makes me think about, you know, Andrew talking about the, the Mollus Academy. You know, you want that knowledge that you have um, to pass on. The first day I walked into the, to the Swans change room, Tony Lockett, Paul Roos, Darren Creswell, those guys didn't come up to me and shake my hand. I didn't meet those guys for a couple of months. Even though we're at training, we're on the same training track, same, same um, uh, locker room, everything, you had to earn that respect. But part of the Bloods culture was we didn't have time for these kids to take one, two, three years to develop. They are talented. That's why we drafted them to our football club. It was part of our responsibility to get the best out of them as soon as possible. And if that meant I had to shake their hands, show them around the club, tell them everything that I know that's going to help them be better than me one day, then that's my role. And that one day when it happens, when they are better than me, that's a moment I should be proud of because I've helped that player get to that point. Um, and for me, you know, that's something that we don't see enough in corporate Australia, that people that have the knowledge, they sort of hold on to it. And I think what I like about the Milos Academy is we're encouraging to upskill our junior uh, people working here. We're trying to pass on that knowledge, that, that skill, um, you know, for people to share their stories and their journey because there is a lot to learn from, you know, the, the people, especially on this floor here, uh, that they could pass on to some of those interns, graduates, you know, new employees. And when you say, you know, when those people go on to be better than you, and be, let's objectively not that many people who came through the Swans got to be much better than you. The sentiment was great. But, you know, despite your storied career, there's obviously near the end we all talk about you know work crisis career crisis is a very challenging period of time for you that's well documented i look forward to some time in the future when i can interview you and we don't touch on this but the the whole the post australian of the year the booing saga uh, etc and what what i find interesting during that time the documentaries that have been made on it show that when it, whenever you speak in the media you're you're calm you're calling for peace let's all work through this together you're not getting over emotional. You're not getting angry. You're not lashing out. When imagine there might have been part of you that was tempted to, but I get the impression for a, a big part of that, you would have almost not. You preferred not to be there, just not to have to. Now at your foundation, you are proudly front and center and taking on leadership and taking two very different circumstances, obviously. But is there something about going through an experience as challenging as that that forges a certain? character in you now that you can turn to good? I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but is there, am I drawing too long a bow there? Oh, possibly, because I don't sort of think of it that way. I think, um, I believe everything happens for a reason and I'm glad, you know, that 13-year-old girl called me an ape that night because it's ended me up to where we are today. And I feel like we're in a place today that, you know, five years ago we probably mightn't have been as a, as a, a nation, the way we're talking about racism, the, the way our kids in school are educating us about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, there is a true and real empathy for Indigenous people and culture, I feel, at the moment. And, you know, at that 
point of time, yes, it was incredibly tough, um, but I still had a job to do. You know, my job, I was paid by the Sydney Swans to go out there and play football. Now, that work environment wasn't the best, obviously, for me to be able to go out there and perform to the level that I wanted to. But at the same time, I had incredible support from my teammates, my football club and other teams, the Players Association. And for me, after 18 years of playing, you know, I just got to a point where I didn't have anything more to prove. I was happy to, to call it quits after, you know, playing at North Melbourne in that elimination final out at Homebush um, because I just took a complete weight off my shoulders. But, and that weight was, you know, having to go to work for two hours and put up with that shit that was happening that I couldn't pinpoint who it was. I couldn't see their faces, but it was just happening around me at my work environment. So um, doesn't happen today. Doesn't happen on the streets, never did. Um, you know, and for me, the message that I have, especially for the ghost students, is there are always going to be people who boo us, whether it's overtly or not. They're, they're going to be there. They're going to try and knock us down from being who we want to be and who we deserve to be and the success that comes with that. You just got to keep rising above it. And if hopefully in reflecting on what happened to me in their own world, in their own circumstances, that they can draw on some of that strength and power um, to, to make them get through those tough times in their life, then that's me having to make that sacrifice for the future generations. You said to me once in a, in a separate forum to this, but similarly, and you said to me once, no one's ever come up to you individually, looked you in the eyes and booed you. No, not at all. And I think- No one's ever had the, you know, no, not, the courage I, or the- Yeah, the courage, that's right. So for me, I knew it was just something that happened when I went to work. Um, and I also knew that I didn't want to go to work anymore. You were called upon as a leader of the club yeah, that must have been a challenging situation for you. What did you learn about leadership being thrown into the, that spotlight or that situation? It's challenging. I think in some ways, Adam and I have some similarities. I'm not, apart from we've won two brown lows between us between and played us, a 300 yeah. game <laughs> couple of premierships. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to be a leader. It wasn't something I aspired to at all. And it just sort of happened. And I don't like public speaking, I don't like having arguments with people in the media and I don't like all sorts of things. But when it happens, it's it's a bit like football in that it's the old saying, when it's your turn, if you've played football, you, you will have heard a coach say this to you at some point, when it's your turn, you have to go. And at times when you're chairman of a football club or leader in anything, when it's your time, your turn, something happens, you've got to stand up, otherwise you shouldn't be in the job. And it was actually relatively easy it was very difficult but it was relatively easily because you know I, I felt very strongly for Adam and you know I would have defended him no matter what it took because one he deserved it and two it was just the right thing to do and as challenging as the situation was for you to know that your boss had your back like that and was willing to and for people who are listening who don't know Andrew you know came out very strongly and said this is not you know, constitutional freedom of speech stuff. This is not people having fun of the footy. This is racism. And if you don't think it is, it is. And even if you individually don't think you are, well, the person you're sitting next to booing quite possibly is, and you really run the risk of just being alongside. They were, they were strong statements to make. They must have resonated with you. I did. And, you know, they were on the back of conversations with me as well. You know, I was holding them off as long as I could, you know, the Andrew and Horse, you know, they kept coming to me saying, Goodsy, this is not going to stop. We need to come out and say something. I was like, look, we've got a couple of home games. Let's just like chill for these next couple of weeks. And it still happened at the home games. And then I, I just give them the green light. I said, look, yeah, look, it'd be 
Good. You guys go there. Like they're not listening to me. They don't care what I have to say. And um, you know, to to feel that love and support. I I remember um, a meeting we had just the players, and you know, the boys are like, "Goodie, this is bullshit. What can we do?" Um, you know, we want to do something. I said, "Well, the best thing that you can do is we go out there and win." Because when we go out there win, I tell you right now, I walk off with a puffed up chest and my head held high. And that, that is the biggest F you to the crowd. And that's done. There's closure on that for me. And when I had that week off, we had lost to Hawthorne at the SCG. And then we went across to Perth and we lost convincingly. And it was just horrible over there. And that's where it all just hit me that this is going to be my last year of football. And this is going to be my sending out. I'm going to be booed all the way to the end, the final end. And it just hit me and I just couldn't couldn't fathom, you know, that that would be the end of my career. And, you know, I played with a couple of legends that have, you know, finished with the fairy tale and, you know, Jason Ball and Paul Williams. But for me, I was just like, well, it's a, it, this is the way it's going to end. Um, I want to make sure I end it on my terms. That's not the way this podcast is going to end. We're going to end on something far more positive because we talked in a previous episode, Andrew came up with the recipe for the the cake of success, and there were 10 different qualities. You don't necessarily have all of them, but they're very important. Grit was the number one. I think we'll give him a tick in the grit column. There were a few others around optimism and things like that. I think, you know, very optimistic outside. There was honesty and humility. There was attention to detail and that true leaders normally have or need someone beside them who's got that attention to detail. And I know in the way that you went about your football, that was a big part of it. And for people who are not complete football tragics like myself. In the 2012 grand final, spoiler alert, Swans win, you bung your knee early in the game. I was at the game, remember, looking down at you lying down on the ground thinking, that doesn't look fantastic. What can you remember of that moment first? Um, I just want to touch point on this cake analogy mm. that you're using yeah. because if you need 10 things to make a cake and you've only got eight of them, which is suggesting you don't need all of them, it's not going to be a very nice cake. So I just want to maybe park, park that one. But You've got to read the book, Adam. Yeah, it yeah, explains yeah. how you can, it works. Have you done an audio book? <laughs> it's coming. Uh, can you get Barack Obama to do the narrating? That would be awesome. Surely, surely <laughs> yeah, you can get that. I think you're more likely to be able to get in than us. <laughs> surely, surely you can do that. Mate, um, I think, yeah, 2012, second quarter, you know, we're up for a mark, um, Grant Burchill's hip, and I just went bang, straight on my knee, into his hip, and I knew straight away that I busted my PCL, uh, and I just thought, okay, well, I know that I can run in a straight line, and I just just kept hobbling. I was like, far out, I've done a pretty good job here, so I ran off to the bench, and Gibbsy did all the tests, and I said, is the ACL okay? He goes, yeah, yeah, it's just your PCL, and um, I said, we'll strap it up, and he goes, you know that'll do enough, and I said, "Yeah, but it might, you know, just make me feel a little bit better." Yeah, <laughs> I got tra- I got tape everywhere else, um, and I just knew at that point in time, having done it in two thousand and four, that you know, this is grand final day. I didn't have to play another game after this ever. This is the moment, um, and you know, I was a co-captain with Jeremy McVay on the day, and I just knew I still had a role to play. Um, I wasn't going to let the team down, and I know that I had Luke Parker sitting on the bench ready to go, but. That was never in my thought process. My job at the day was to go out there and beat Josh Gibson. I had a role to make sure that he didn't come off me to go spoil any other players. And um, my role was to put forward pressure on, and I knew I could do that. And I remember at halftime, John Longmire coming up to me in the change rooms as I've sort of hobbled in. He goes, are you okay? I said, yeah, mate, I'm okay. And then just before we ran out, I was having a piss, and John Longmire comes, pokes his head around, and goes, Goodsy, are you okay? 
I was like, yeah, mate, I'm good, I'm good. And then just before I ran out to go up the race, he grabbed me by the hand. He said, Goodsy, are you okay? I said, horse, I'm fucking good. Leave me alone. <laughs> Leave me alone. We've got a game to win. And then I ran out. And he knew then for the second half he didn't have to worry about me. At the moment, you would have been at the game. At the moment that he at the moment that he does entry and it goes up on the big screen and all that sort of stuff, can you did your heart sink a bit? It's interesting when when you're in a, the capacity of chairman of club, I wasn't chairman then, but as, as a director, it's quite clinical watching. I mean, I'm emotional inside, but it's quite clinical. You're watching it and it, it is what it is. You can't do anything about it. So you just sort of think it is what it is. And if Goodsey goes off, Luke Parker comes on. So it's one off, one on. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how you have to look at it because nothing you can do about it. And I think the best thing about our culture is, yes, you know, certain players have different skill um, that they bring to the game. But this is grand final day. We already knew that we had to play outside of our skin to beat the best team in the competition. Hawthorne were the best team by a country mile. Um, so we knew even us playing to our absolute best wasn't going to be able to beat them. We had to go over and beyond that to even match it with them. And um, we knew that whoever came on and off just had their role to play. And whether it was one player coming off and the other player coming on, didn't matter what skill they had, they still had the ability to put pressure on in a game like a grand final where every moment matters to the final score. And one of the moments that mattered a lot to the final score we're into the last quarter now, you've been not running side to side much, running in a straight line a lot, just crashing into people a lot, getting a few touches, doing your bit, doing your role. Ball comes down to a pack. You're not going to compete for this. You peel off to the side, kick for Swans fans, one of the great goals in the history of the game. But on my point of a meticulous attention to detail, that wasn't, there was no aspect of fluke in that, was there? No, not at all. You know, my role was to engage Josh Gibson. And as that ball came in, I, I held him for as long as I could. And then I pushed him into the pack, just created a half a meter for me. If a ball bounced into my hand, that I could then turn and snap. Now that turn and snap is something that I would practice 20 times on my left foot, on my right foot after every training session. 20 times every training session, yeah. week in, week out. Week in, week out because, you know, in my older years, um, you know, I wouldn't train as long as everybody else. So I had extra time at the end of the session and I wouldn't use that time to go in and ice. I could do that later. I used that to then, you know, do these little snaps around the corner you know, in the in the off charts that hopefully... You never know when. You never know when, maybe. Um, you know, when we're one point just up in the grand final. Just hit his knee with a hammer, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just, to, just in case he had a bad PCL. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, it just shows you, mate, that, you know, the really good players and the ones that people watch and go and they make it effortless on the field are the players that work the hardest off the field. Um, they're constantly practising the things that they make look easy on the field. We talk about culture, we talk about history. These are deep concepts that run through the entire book, the entire podcast series. What's the essence of the message here, Andrew? Well, for one moment, I thought this was a real footy podcast. (laughs) Uh, It's actually a business podcast. Um, Look, I think with Adam, he typifies a really important list for anyone that's listening to this, if they're in business, if they're in politics, if they're in whatever they do, don't listen to people who knock you. There's plenty of people out there who want to knock you. There's plenty of people who tell you you're going to fail. There's the media, there's, there's all sorts of people that will tell you that. Don't listen to them. Keep at it. And if you keep at it and you've got the ability that's got you there to the start line, you've got the grit, you just apply yourself and just keep going and keep going, you will succeed. And that's, to me, Adam Goods. 
And it's milestones, isn't it? You know, I started a SME five years ago. You know, our first goal was to get through one year. We still survived. It was then to get through the second year. And once you pass that second year, the percentages of you, you know, falling on your ass, you know, slightly decrease from what they, they were a year before that. And, you know, to be five years down the path, you know, setting goals like I did for football of how to grow and how to stay on point. I've created a team culture within my small team um, based on, you know, the Bloods culture about everyone delivering on their word, being hard, disciplined, relentless, challenge each other, support each other. You know, all these values that I've learned in my football career, I've just taken over into to business and owning and running a, a small business. So for me and those listeners out there, you know, you, you can only be successful as you want to the goals and ambition that you have. Because you know, you can have a goal to turn over $100 million, but if you don't break down the steps on how you're gonna get there, you're never gonna get there. It's a pipe dream. But I think you know, people like um, Andrew and myself have been able to you know, set those you know, long-term goals, but have a small achievements on how you're gonna get there. And if you don't have all the knowledge, how are we partnering and, and learning from other people to, to help us on that journey? As Andrew said, uh, a storied football career. There's a handful of footballers who have ever matched the, the dizzying heights to which you've climbed. But there's every chance that post-football you're going to kick goals, excuse the pun, far greater than he, he kicked on a field, even including that hobbly one-legged effort in the 2012 Grand Final. Andrew, as always, a pleasure. Adam Goods, it's just been wonderful to have you on the What Matters podcast. Thank you for joining today's episode of What Matters. And don't forget... Head over to mafinancial.com slash whatmatters to download your copy of the ebook. Be sure to subscribe to What Matters and join us next time for a fascinating conversation about change and crisis with a man who's been at the coalface when things go upside down. Brian Tyson, Managing Director at Newgate, our guest next time on What Matters. What Matters.